Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're at the beginning of another brand new week here in Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. We've got a lot to talk about, so I want to get right to our panel today. It's Monday, which means that Jim Galloway, the former political uh, columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Jim's now uh, sort of enjoying sort of being retired, Jim Galloway, and also getting set. You're packing up all the boxes in your house That's right. To make a brand brand new start over there in West Cobb County. Yeah, a brand new start, maybe four or five miles away. So we're still around. Okay. (laughs) The people of Cobb County would hate to lose you, Galloway. It would be a big issue. We're joined today, too, by the mayor of Augusta, Georgia, Hardy Davis, who we're very happy to have uh, back with us on the show today. How are you doing, Hardy? In a couple minutes, I want to ask you to give us a status report on COVID in Augusta and other matters that you might want to share with us. But in the meantime, how's it going for you? Things are great. Uh, happy to be with you, Bill, and the rest of the team. Uh, thanks for having us on again. It's been a while, but uh, looking forward to talking about all things Georgia and including bits and pieces about Augusta in there. Yeah, we, we should point out Hardy Davis has a long career of public service in the state of Georgia, serving in the state legislature as both a member of the uh, state Senate and the House of Representatives before becoming uh, mayor. Amy Steigerwald is back with us, professor of political science at Georgia State University and the associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State, which is one of those titles that sounds really impressive until you see the checkbox of things you have to do when you become an associate chair. Right, Amy? (laughs) Indeed. I am getting very familiar with all sorts of paperwork and making sure I file it in the correct places. So we're we're getting there. Oh, good. Good. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And Heath Garrett. Heath Garrett's back with us. We haven't seen Heath for a while. Heath, of course, is a veteran Republican political consultant in Georgia and in other states. Um, I think, Heath, fair to say that your concentration has been in the South, but I don't know that that's entirely true. That's right, Bill. It's great to be back with you, and uh, we do work all over the country. (laughs) We've even won for Republicans in New Jersey, so... uh, Oh, we've done some interesting work around the country. Oh, okay. Um, We should point out that um, you are working on the campaigns of both Attorney General Chris Carr, the Republican uh, AG is running for re-election, and you told us you're uh, working for Brian Kemp's re-election campaign as well. So it'll be interesting to hear your take. Um, Although I know you come on this show as an independent political analyst, and I think we need to make that clear as well, Heath. Um, let's get started. Um, Mayor Davis, I do want to look at Augusta for a few minutes because, first of all, we'd love to get a status report anytime we have a mayor of an important city in Georgia and we want to hear how things are going for you with, with COVID. Um, so why don't we start by asking that? What, what kind of caseload are you experiencing right now? Are things still moving in a bad direction? Is it starting to back off a bit? How are things right now? Well, 
follow the general rule of thumb, Bill. Uh, we, like most cities, have seen our fair share of cases increasing. I think over the last couple of weeks, uh, post Labor Day, we were all in hot anticipation of hopefully seeing another major increase. We've seen some numbers go up, but I think there appears to be some leveling off. Uh, I will have a better sense of that when we have our midweek meeting with all of our hospitals and our healthcare providers on Wednesday of this week. Uh, but I'm I'm generally optimistic. Uh, the challenge for us right now is getting shots in arms. People need to get vaccinated. Uh, even, and I know you're going to ask me this later, we've got an incentive program. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, the challenge, again, is all of the rhetoric, misinformation, and all of that stuff that's keeping people from standing up saying, hey, put a shot in my arm. Well, talk about your incentive program. Yeah, uh, we're fortunate, uh, like other cities. Uh, I think that uh, CEO Mike Thurman is the uh, champion for what a vaccine program should look like, an incentive program. So we tried to model some of that. Uh, we started out with uh, our first trial about two weeks ago now. Uh, we saw an uptick in people going out and getting vaccinated. We've got to make a few tweaks to that, uh, but we're offering a $100 incentive for folks to get fully vaccinated. Uh, we're going to make some adjustments to that because at the end of the day, we just want people to get shots in their arms. Uh, but I think it's the right approach for us right now, uh, trying to get as many of Augustans uh, vaccinated as possible. I think we're right at about 38, 39% of people being fully vaccinated right now in Augusta. We've got a long ways to go. This is a long slog, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah, Augusta vaccination rates uh, are below even the very low state average, which is around 40 Two percent, I think, fully vaccinated. So you really do have a long way to go. You mentioned disinformation a minute ago. Do you believe that disinformation plays the biggest role in why people are not being vaccinated? Um, or there, you have a large African-American community. We are told over and over again that there are some African-Americans who continue to feel uh, uncertain about whether or not to trust the medical uh, establishment, given uh, past horrors in which African-Americans were badly mistreated. Is there an element of that as well? I think globally there's a level of mistrust. You've just heard too many competing conversations around not only COVID, the different variants, and more importantly now the vaccines that clearly are safe. Uh, we've got three vaccines that are clearly safe. Uh, people are making great strides. Uh, you look at the number of cases that we have that are hospitalized. Roughly 98 to 99% of all hospitalizations are of people who are unvaccinated. The same holds true for individuals who are on ICU or in, on ventilators. That still holds true. So the moral of the story is be smart, save a life that might be your own, and go get a shot in your arm, and at a minimum, get that first dose. That's the message that we're sharing with people all across our community. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they are black, white, Asian, Latin, go get a shot in your arm. I want people to live a long, prosperous life, but you can't do that uh, if we're, and I use this term, if we're just being really stupid, paying attention to all of the noise that's out there. You know, when you've got noise on the television, you turn that off and you pay attention to what's really real. And so this is a real opportunity for folks to save their life, maybe their own, uh, as well as their loved ones. Um, I want to mention one other one other piece of data uh, to you, or several pieces of data, and then and then everybody else can jump in. Um, it appears, based on a, a report that I read in the Augusta Chronicle over the weekend, that you do have some of your hospitals are really packed 
about as uh, tightly as they can right now. And unfortunately, I don't know these hospitals uh, the way that you will. But for instance, I see that University Hospital in Augusta has an, 82, an 83% of their inpatient beds are filled, 69 per, or 68% of the ICU beds are full, Doctors Hospital, 96% of inpatient beds are full, and 100% of their ICU beds are full. Same thing over at AU Medical Center, 87% of the beds in the hospital are full, and 94% of ICU beds are full. So you're still dealing with a crush of COVID patients in the hospitals in your, in your county. We're dealing with a crush of COVID patients in our hospitals, and that's across the board. Our largest university, AU, uh, next in size, and then, of course, doctors. Uh, they largely make up our entire healthcare continuum. The challenge you've got, as I talk to my hospital uh, CEOs every week uh, and, those, and those leaders, is that you've got a shortage of people who can serve individuals in the hospital. Uh, you've got this competition that's happening across the state. It's interstate. It's intrastate. And so when you've got individuals who are working in hospitals in Augusta who say, well, I'm going to go make more money in Savannah, and they run off to Savannah, and then you've got Savannians who say, well, I'm going to go to Augusta, uh, it makes for a poison pill. Hospitals are at capacity, and much of that capacity is that if one more person shows up, uh, I don't have someone who can minister care to them. That's a significant problem for us across the state of Georgia. It's not isolated. It's in Augusta, and we've got to get our arms around this. I'll throw this one thing out. Uh, one of the challenges that we have is that everybody went back to normal. We've got this little thing called SEC football. And when, and I, nobody loves football more than I do. But when you go to stadiums and nobody's wearing a mask, uh, what we've said is we're all back to normal at this point in the South. And that's going to create more problems for us. Uh, kudos to folks who are doing it safe. But it's just a sign of the time that everybody wants to get back to what we were always doing. Yeah, it's uh, Bill. It's it's what's 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 interesting here is there are some signs, current signs, uh, that that the, that the 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 present surge may have peaked. I mean, there, there's some there's some signs that hospitalizations uh, are, are 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 dipping a little bit. That's but but to to, to the mayor's point, yeah, uh, 120 thousand people in the stadium, none of them wearing masks. Uh, that has that has potential. I would uh, also point to just a. a little bit of good news uh, for this uh, from this morning, and that is Pfizer is saying that a low dose of its vaccine is is quite effective in children from ages five to eleven. Now, there's no FDA. I mean, that still has to go through the FDA rigor. But to to me, the key to really nailing this pandemic is going to be uh, getting school children vaccinated. Um, you know what, Amy? I I think we all probably saw that bulletin cross the wires, and and it is significant if five year olds uh, and up can start being vaccinated. But I think it is also, Amy, going to be another battleground, another place where parents, uh, either because they're being fed misinformation, or they simply are nervous about their children's health and are not quite sure that these vaccines have been through the kind of rigorous process that uh, vaccines for measles and mumps and rubella have been through. I, I mean, and, and there's going to be pushback again. If we're seeing fights in schools 
about whether masks should be mandatory. I can't even imagine the fighting we're going to see. Not that anyone's going to mandate, at least now, that these children get vaccinated, but just I think it's going to be another battleground, Amy. Um, It is, unfortunately, and it actually goes back to a completely false study that was done back in the 80s that suggested that there was a link between vaccines and autism that keeps coming up that you you see this like people like the study gets every year it gets sent around again and the problem is it literally like this is one of those times where especially as someone who works with data and works with stuff it's infuriating because the person literally like the whole thing is made up like the it's not that they like even like sort of manipulated it they literally just made stuff up to be able to advance it but it is kind of the core of that and it causes issues um And it's one of those things where we're sort of battling the fact that on the one hand, to go to school right now, there are quite a lot of vaccines that you have to have. They are mandated to be able to go. Um, And, you know, as my mother said the other day, there's a reason that, like, I didn't have to get a polio vaccine because everyone her generation got it. And now we don't have to worry about polio. We don't worry about smallpox. Um, My child will never have chickenpox, which was not a fun experience. Um, Because now we have a chickenpox vaccine. And so the reality is, is like vaccines work. They're great. We don't worry about things like measles and mumps anymore and having massive outbreaks. But we also have to constantly battle sort of the misinformation that exists there and the idea that like, no, this is actually really important. And it does require, which is, I think, again, something also that we have to sort of deal with. Like it does require all of us to do it to be able to keep those safe who aren't able, like truly aren't able to get these shots because they're immunocompromised, because they're going through chemotherapy, uh, different sort of things like that. And it's really hard. But I, you know, I guess personally, I am thrilled at that information that the Pfizer vaccine is about ready to go in for an EUA. And I just want it to actually happen. I've, I've been hearing it for a while that it's coming. And I would like it to actually go in and get the EUA because I'll admit, as a parent of a child who can't be vaccinated right now, like that's one of the things that will allow me to feel better about it is that we can go places again when he's vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, when you talk about that, what you're talking about is FDA final approval. is Exactly. Is, well, EUA approval. It, it won't be final approval, but it'll well, be the, the emergency w- use authorization. Oh, thank you very much for that. Um, Heath, Let's talk about this in a larger context. Um, we, we know that one of the reasons that people have been uh, resistant in some cases to vaccinations, to even uh, uh, their questions about how dangerous the uh, uh, COVID actually is, has to do with the fact that, like it or not, there's been confusing messaging that has come out of CDC from the early days um, to uh, uh, people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who've uh, changed their opinion on a number of uh, uh, aspects of how the virus should be dealt with. And now, most significantly, we're seeing with President Biden, uh, here's, here's the president who said um, weeks ago, on September 20th, we're going to make it possible for all Americans to start getting booster shots if they've already been fully vaccinated. And the FDA is pushing back, saying, no, it isn't necessary. To what extent? I mean, we blame a lot of Republican disinformation campaigns on what's happening here. But to what extent is the confusing messaging 
coming out of the public health community and the White House, in this case, having an impact? I think it's having a tremendous impact, uh, Bill. And it, it, look, it's a bipartisan impact. And I, I will uh, gladly recognize that there are inconsistent messages coming out of the, the CDC when it was led by Republicans and now inconsistent messaging coming out of the CDC now that it's run by Democrats. And I think that we have to kind of step back like Amy did and say, you know, the original anti-vax movement came out of the left, right out of Hollywood, essentially, uh, in California uh, prior to this major pandemic. And now we have politicians on both sides uh, and then on top of that, we have this platform called digital media that we never had before, and it's the easiest way to spread good information and bad information. But you're right. I think that we need a, a little dose of scientific humility, and I wish that public health officials early on had had a little bit of that, saying, hey, we're going into global pandemic, and we don't know. We, you know when we say trust the science, we needed to also add to that even a year and a half ago, hey, but the science is going to, we're still studying this. And as, as the science moves, we're going to move with it. And, and we had such definitive statements so early on, whether it was by a Republican president or now by a Democratic president, we had such definitive statements made by uh, scientists in public health as if they knew everything and all and had all knowledge at all times throughout the you know universe and throughout history and uh, that humility is now coming back to bite us as we that lack of humility is coming back to bite us as things are are changing and as the studies go forward i mean i look i'm i'm happy to say that my 12-year-old, my 16-year-old, my 18-year-old were first in line as children, right, because I had the ability to go do the study and to look at it, and I knew the process that it had gone through. Uh, I love what the mayor is doing, which is creating incentives and being out there. We've got to, we've got to incentivize people, uh, and there's been a lot of chastising by both political parties of each other, uh, which has been unconstructive uh, all the way through this process. But, yes, uh, we've got to get kind of – a little bit of humility in our scientific community. I think people understand that scientists is gonna, science is going to evolve here, but but it is being used against us now for those of us who want people to get vaccinated. So, so Hardy, I was with Heath until he made that last comment that he thinks people do understand science is evolving. I think the big everything he said seemed to be spot on. This was a new virus when it hit us a year and a half ago or so. Science had to start beginning to understand it. They made assumptions about it and observations about it early on that they thought were correct. But because it was new, they began learning more and more about it as time went on. And it was all of that as they changed their approach. You don't have to wear a mask. You do have to wear a mask. You should wipe down surfaces when you bring groceries home from the grocery. No, you don't have to. All of that has contributed, right, to a point where I don't quite think I agree with Heath that most people do a lot. Put it this way, a lot of the anti-vaxxers certainly don't think it's an evolving science. They think they've been manipulated. You know, I think he's spot on. When you look at uh, this is a bipartisan issue, Uh, the missteps, uh, the successes, uh, they're bipartisan in nature. And the reality of it is we as Americans have to own this process. We've got to own this conversation now. And people's lives were at stake. They continue to be at stake. And I think the challenge that we have is that all of our uh, people who are out front, those forward-facing individuals, there was the pressure to perform and the pressure to respond uh, to a global pandemic in motion. Uh, Unfortunately, 
you know, everybody's not on the battlefield where you're military leaders and you've got the best of intelligence to try to respond. Uh, that doesn't always happen, uh, whether it's, you know, at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level. There's always this gap in information. And so uh, to the degree that there are those who take time to uh, engage in thoughtful conversation, uh, we've got to tack towards our better angels uh, and focus on the reality of life. And that is it doesn't care. I don't care whether it's a Republican or Democrat. At the end of the day, uh, I've had individuals who have died. Most recently, I had a 911 dispatcher who died because of COVID, 28 mm-hmm. years old. That person is not going to get the benefit of living to be 52 years old like I am. That's unfortunate. On Saturday, uh, I had a deputy jailer uh, who also died. Uh, these things are real. It's happening, and we've got to make the adjustments in motion uh, and, and do better in terms of how we're communicating the importance. Uh, again, I think Amy said it best. You know, I don't remember going to school, whether it was in elementary, middle school, or high school, let alone going to Georgia Tech, without having been fully vaccinated before I showed up on campus. Let's stop all of this nonsense and just go get the shot. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in, in 10 years, if we're all still around, uh, I think we're going to be uh, calling this uh, a confluence of two pandemics. Uh, you do have the COVID-19 uh, virus, but then you've got this other virus of disinformation. That's just, uh, it has, it is, and, and, it, and it's at every, it's, it is spread to every level of society. You have a uh, you you have a, a a a worldwide population that is now addicted to certainty. It doesn't care what the information is. It just wants that information, and if that 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 information, uh, if if it if it carries the 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 the, the imprimatur of, of certainty, they're with it. That's where that's where they want to go. Uh, if you uh, the mayor talked about this as as, as warfare, you know it, what's interesting is you know if uh, in the last uh, last century when we went through two world wars, and the one thing that neither of those wars had was certainty. We didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't know th- that this tactic was going to work or that tactic. We had to adapt. And and I think because the information, you know, we, we weren't flooded with information, I think it was it might have been easier to, to make those adaptations. Yeah, and just one actually follow-up on what Jim is talking about. I mean, they're actually in the psychological research is a thing for this. It's called motivated reasoning. It's the idea that we start with sort of beliefs. And the problem is a lot of times when we get information that contradicts those beliefs, our initial reaction, if not our final reaction, is to try to figure out basically how to not take that information in and instead keep with our sort of existing beliefs because it makes us feel better. And so especially when right now there's a lot of disinformation, there are multiple sources that you can get information from, and it's hard to know sort of which ones are right, especially in a context where something literally is a novel disease where it's changing minute by minute, day by day, that actually aids that process of people being able to reject information that's coming in And it really sort of leads us down this rabbit hole of people not knowing what's going on and, unfortunately, not following uh, the science in this time. Yeah, and, Bill, I think a lot of this is is like human nature. We now know we've got this problem of misinformation, disinformation. We've got this problem of people not being motivated. 
and and, the, and now the I think the biggest question in society today is how do we motivate? What I liked about what the mayor was saying is, and I do think what I, what I meant to say was I think the, the average American can understand the science of balls, but they're not able to cipher through you know, their, their misinformation. But I use this as an example. My daughter's a freshman at the University of Georgia. She had one professor who started out before classes even starting, chastising the students, very arrogant attitude, demanding that they all wear masks, right, and, and basically told them they're all stupid if they didn't. And that class gets about 20% mask compliance. She had another professor who wrote a very nice email saying that he's a grandfather who has a, has a nine-month-old grandchild at home. And that they, he asked, please, would you please wear masks so that I can, because my, my wife can't get uh, vaccinated because she has immunocompromised. It was a very pleasant email. And they, she said they get 80 to 90% compliance of masks in that classroom, right? So what does that tell us about human nature, right? It tells us that incentives work better, you know, than, than kind of punishments. Obviously, we've got to use the carrot and the stick in life, but I wish we could get to how we doing more incentives because we're not that far off, right, uh, if we could just get these shots in the arms of, of all these people. But, I, again, I'm not sure federal government is the, always the right answer. I like going back. I like the way the states have experimented throughout this process. We've learned from different states doing different things. States like Georgia have adopted some of the things that the northeastern states have done, but the northeastern states have also adopted some of the things that we in Georgia have done or not done because they're able to study these different things. I think we just need to all kind of back up and, again, have a little intellectual scientific humility. You know, I think this has been a tremendous test case in uh, adaptive leadership. When we look back over this two, three, four years from now, we're going to look and see several case studies on uh, the successes and failures of adaptive leadership. I liken this to being probably one of the worst political campaigns that I've seen in a long time and that uh, we became so inundated with information that we lost sight of what we wanted the expected outcomes to be. And so we hovered around what the left saying, what the right saying, as opposed to what outcomes do we want. I think about uh, a conversation we had with Frank Lund some time ago, uh, one moving from calling it COVID-19 and saying virus and all of these things to how we message on this. And so I think as we move forward, we've got to talk consistently about what are the outcomes that we're wanting to see across the board, whether it's in classrooms, whether it's in homes, whether it's in communities, whether it's in businesses, and not do that from a fear-mongering perspective, but just talk about that as we move to this sense of normalcy, Here's how we accomplish that. Here's what's needed from each and every participant to get to that place. And now, as Americans, good Georgians, here's what needs to happen in order to get there. I really, great great way to end the first segment. Um, there are all sorts of things on, on my uh, list of uh, topics to talk about today, but I think this is a good conversation. And if you're all up, uh, uh, fine with this, I want to take a quick break, come back. There are a few more things I'd like uh, for all of you to comment on in terms of COVID. We'll do that after we pause for these messages. Augusta Mayor Hardy Davis, Jim Galloway, former columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University and Republican political consultant Heath Garrett with us uh, for today's show. Uh, Jim Galloway, it does seem to me uh, and this sort of bounces off something Heath was talking about, 
that President we know that President Biden's approval ratings are going down, and and pollsters tell us one reason is that the virus is uh, out of control again. Um, and I do think there's a catch twenty two for the president here. Uh, the, the the president is being roundly criticized by Republicans for putting in place these uh, this mandate, which would require businesses with 100 people or more to have their employees uh, vaccinated, federal employees, the military is going to get vaccinated. So, so Republicans are using this as an example of federal overreach. But the reality is, it is the Republicans who are the largest percentage of people who are resisting getting vaccinated in the first place, putting a Democratic president in a position where um, he's being criticized because the virus is out of control. Uh, and when he tries to do something about it, uh, he's being criticized for that. It seems like a no-win situation, Jim. Right, and 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 to carry that point further, if if uh, if uh, the, these these federal mandates stick and the virus goes down, you de- you've got a set of uh, Republican governors out there, including Brian Kemp, who will claim victory. And 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 say their policies are the ones that uh, that actually worked. Uh, it's uh, but it, it's got if you see polling on on handling the virus, there's a I mean, uh, Biden's approval rating is 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 very strong, still very strong among Democrats, and it's it's pretty good among uh, with with independents, and and that's why one of the things that really interested me uh, late last week was was Attorney General Chris Carr signed on to a letter, and and I'm sure Heath can talk to, to tell us more about it that, that warned the Biden administration that they are willing they they're going to take the uh, the they're 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 ready to take the uh, administration to court if 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 he pursues that line that's a warning it's that's it, you know usually that that's that's a strange thing to do uh in in that usually you simply file the suit and i think this it's it's, it's a, it was a tentative step because i'm not sh- I, I don't think that governors uh republican governors and other office holders are absolutely sure about how uh, uh biden's uh, mandate is going to are going to play out if there's that, and there's also questions, Heath Garrett, as to whether or not there is any uh, legal uh, basis for suing the president. There seems to be good precedent for the president having the authority to do this under a number of regulations and statutes. Heath? No, look, I think that uh, we obviously try to always put a political lens on something. I think these attorneys generals and governors are pretty principled and the fact that, you know, President Biden announced six or seven things that he was going to do as President of the United States. There's no attempt at lawsuit on six of those, right? The only thing that we're writing about is whether or not a president can constitutionally, with the stroke of a pen, mandate that every business with 100 people do anything like this, right? And if that's the case, then the question, then we are on a matter of principle, pushing back and going, look, no vaccine mandates come from the president of the United States. They all come from the states. They all, you are, there are requirements for uh, vaccines to go to school, right, to attend Georgia Tech and these other things. Those all come from the state. And that's what all this is about, is making sure that the president, because if the president has the power to do this, then he can mandate almost anything else on the business of 100 people or more, and it's not just the mandate of his vaccine. So I think this is a good intention. I'll give the president that he has good intentions here. 
But this is executive overreach. The president doesn't have the power. And the only reason why the lawsuit hasn't been filed yet is, guess what? Like all of his executive orders, he, he, he did an executive order, but it says, it's basically saying to one of his departments, go figure out how we legally do this. So he doesn't even know how he can legally do this at the point in time. So you can't file a suit until they actually take action. It's, a, it's one of his executive orders that says he's doing something, but it, nothing's actually been done yet. So there's a, I know we can get into constitutional law, but I think we're on pretty good ground that he's not, this is like uh, the mandate of buying health insurance. The Supreme Court is not going to give the president the authority to just do this with the stroke of a pen. If he want to go to Congress and pass a law, if you want the state legislature to do this, these are they may be the right thing to do. And by the way, Chris Carr absolutely believes everybody should go get vaccinated. Talk to your doctor. He's vaccinated. He promotes vaccination. This is purely a matter of legal principle. Whether you're President Trump or President Biden, you shouldn't have this power as President of the United States. That's what checks and balances are all about. Hardy Davis. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I like the way Heath articulated that. I mean, the reality of it is, you know, it's kind of like the governor. Generally, the governor can do anything, right? <laughs> and uh, we then have to respond to it pursuant to state law and the Constitution. I think what we see happening uh, with uh, President Biden is that he's articulated a rule and said, here's the agency that's responsible for implementation. When you look at uh, the goal around uh, uh, employees of 100 or more people, the focus there is on those high-volume employers who have people who will come into contact on large numbers and trying to mitigate uh, the concerns of the virus and the expansion or trans- transmission of the virus. So I think it's the I think it's appropriate. Uh, I'd like to see how this plays out in the courts, but I think without question, we've got to see some sense of giving direction, whether it be at the federal, state, or local level, on uh, pushing people to move to do what we should have done, and that is get vaccinated. Uh, I'm not sure if we so, called it, you know, a mandate back in uh, 19, you know, 75 when I was a kid and had to go to school, didn't want to have mumps, measles, chicken pox, or rubella, uh, but I knew one thing. My parents made sure I got all of the shots. Yeah, and of course, what, what Amy, what, what those who are opposed to a federal mandate would say is, yes, it is states that have imposed those mandates for schools, uh, not the federal government. But Amy, you're the uh, federal, you know the federal judiciary, you follow the law very carefully. So let's just respond to something about that he says. Number one, we've said on the show before that uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, does in fact have regulations which say that the federal government can protect workers from harm in the workplace, right? And that's one of the ways that the president and his administration feels they're protected in this. You can go all the way back to 1906, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the case in which the United States Supreme Court uh, uh, rejected a challenge to Massachusetts saying you must have a smallpox vaccine uh, a minister challenged that under freedom of uh, religion, and the Supreme Court said, no, no, the safety of the, of the public is much more important in this case than that. So there are precedents. I mean, th- this is not an easy case. Um, it's not an easy case for those who are bringing it. It's actually a bit of an yes, easier case. 
um, in making right. it. This is one of those where there is. So saying as the political side of it, when at least it comes to the legal side, yes. So there, there's two things. So executive orders must fall under uh, federal statutes. And so this one is being done under the powers that are within OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and they uh, prescribe what can happen at businesses to ensure, right? So that's the one that, that makes sure that, for example, you're not allowed to have machinery that we know will cut off hands or cut off fingers when you use it and that are sort of glaringly um, unsafe, which used to occur. And so it also uh, does have mechanisms about sort of keeping people safe more broadly and what that means. So that's where sort of like ventilation and stuff also comes in. So they're using that. The other thing is the 1905 uh, Supreme Court case of Jacobson v. Massachusetts, where it did look incredibly similar to exactly what we're talking about, utilizing it under that. And uh, the court's determination was to kind of paraphrase that one man's liberty can't deprive his neighbors of their own liberty, right, here by spreading disease. And so it's sort of the same issue. Okay. I would say, though, on the other side of that, Massachusetts was a case about a state imposing a vaccine mandate, not the federal government imposing it. And I would think if you're Chris Carr and the other Republican AGs, you're thinking that that might be a distinction, right, Amy? Um, yes, except that they did it under um, the due process clause, which in the uh, Fifth Amendment, so the, the 14th Amendment has a due process clause that we apply to the states, but the original, right, so not even in the, it, before we got to the amendments, but in the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment um, actually applies to, has the exact same provision that applies to the federal government, and so they would use that. Okay. Okay, I agree um, with everything Amy said, uh, Bill. Yeah, I agree with everything Amy said. The challenge here is that, and I think this is why there's legal precedent and standing, and that is OSHA, they're responsible for setting safety standards. This mandate is being handed down as an additional safety standard for the health welfare of all employees who work for large employers. And so the same way that OSHA sets standards for whether it's eyewash stations, uh, wet floors, machinery, et cetera, that's what's being utilized here uh, in an effort to make sure that people are getting vaccinated. Okay, um, I, I want to move forward, um, and I thank you all for that conversation. But Jim Galloway, let's talk just briefly. Hardy Davis started off our, our show by talking about two people in Augusta, two public workers who died of COVID recently, it, personalizing this awful disease. And Jim, you and I were both very moved yesterday in reading a story that your former colleague, Ariel Hart, uh, uh, ran in yesterday's paper. We can't get into it in great detail. And Sam Bermistaw, so we could post it on our social media. I would love to do that. Hazelhurst, Georgia, Jim, a 25-bed hospital. Hazelhurst is just south of Vidalia, off of 16, a tiny community. Dr. Jason Laney, had a patient who was the principal of the county high school. His name was Greer Smith, 38 years old. He was dying of COVID. He was in the hospital dying. And Dr. Laney went to incredible lengths to try to save his life. He needed 
um, a treatment called ECMO, which is a treatment we don't have time to get into. It's more than the other measures that we've talked about on this show and you've heard about. Uh, it basically is a machine that breathes for you so your lungs can rest. And Jim, Dr. Laney got on one phone call after another to hospitals all over Metro Atlanta trying desperately to find an ECMO machine that his he could have uh, transport uh, Greer Smith to the hospital that had the machine to save his life. Um, Ariel Hart describes Dr. Laney and people on the other end at other hospitals in tears over the dilemma of making this happen. And, and this is just one example of tragedies that are taking place not only all over the state, but all over the country because of COVID. And when we put it in those terms, we've got to stop thinking about politics. It is. It is one of these. It is a great uh, in in the news business. We would call this a TikTok, a, a narrative of how how decisions are made and under what circumstances. And if you, you know, you, we we are under all these warnings that that healthcare is about to be rationed. Well, guess what? It already is. And this is this is how the rationing process works in Georgia right now, when there are so many patients and too few resources to help them. Greer Smith's life was saved. Uh, a hospital did take him in. He was transported from Hazelhurst to a Metro Atlanta hospital, I think, and put on the machine, and he survived. And he's now going to get vaccinated, if he hasn't already had at least his first shot. Let's take a break and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, I want to talk for just a few minutes about the Buckhead City movement um, and try to put it in the larger context of really the entire uh, state. Um, We know the secession effort is apparently having some impact, although the AJC poll uh, that was taken just a, a, about a week or so ago showed a majority of people in the city of Atlanta overall opposed uh, secession for Buckhead. Within Buckhead, the zip codes that are Buckhead zip codes, it was the opposite. There was a small majority that uh, favored it. But Hardy Davis, I want to ask you about this, being the mayor of a major city in Georgia. The reason I think it's interesting for the whole state, um, in one sense, is... For a while now, Tucker Carlson on Fox News has been promoting Buckhead cityhood. And he's had uh, frequent appearances by Bill White, the New Yorker who's moved to Georgia and is now leading this secession uh, movement. But it was, a, it, were com- it was comments that Carlson made the other night that I'm interested in how you as a mayor would respond to. He, Carlson said this, Atlanta needs Buckhead. Buckhead does not need Atlanta. And that's true of a lot of places. This is not just a local interest story. This is of interest to a lot of people around the country who are really being hurt by the crazed management of their woke leaders. And then he said, we don't have to live like this. Nobody in America should have to live like this. You owe them nothing. They hate you and they act like it. And I hope you leave immediately. That'll be a lesson to the rest of the country. That is really a staggering way to frame this, uh, Hardy. Well, you know, again, uh, I'm the mayor of Augusta, Georgia. Our politics are local. 
And I think the best way to say this is that when people come to the great state of Georgia, uh, they fly in Atlanta. They don't fly in the Buckhead. At the end of the day, when people fly into Augusta, they don't fly in the Martinez. They don't fly in the Evans. They don't fly in the Blythe or Hepsiville. They fly into Augusta, Georgia. And so to suggest that, you know, one doesn't need the other is just sheer poppycock. Uh, this conversation, this NIMBY conversation, not in my backyard, crime happens everywhere. Uh, and at the end of the day, you've got to have city leaders who decide that they're going to put their arms around this issue, put the resources in place. I know you've got a mayoral election that's taking place in Atlanta. I've got some friends who are running for mayor. Uh, and I expect this conversation to, again, uh, be be tempered. Uh, and hopefully, uh, once you've got a mayor in place, uh, in 2022, uh, that we have cooler heads and better thoughts uh, that prevail around what the resources are that are needed. And it's not just in Buckhead, whether it's Atlantic Station, whether it's Midtown, whether it's over in Techwood. People want safe cities. They want clean streets. They want nice neighborhoods. They want good schools. And so I think whether it's Tucker Carlson or anybody else, stay out of it. This is a Georgia conversation. And uh, let's let <laughs> yep. Georgians do what they do. Um, yeah, Bill. This is this is uh, what Tucker Carlson uh, uh, is trying to do is is make this an ideological movement, and and it there's a there's a possibility there uh, because if if this referendum is is put on the November twenty twenty two ballot, it could be a, it could be a a, a powerful motivation for for uh, Republican voters in Buckhead to get out there. <laughs> now the question is is does 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 uh, do Georgia Republicans, the top leadership uh, of the state, do they buy into this? Uh, normally, an, uh, a movement like this would, would 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 rely on legislation drawn up by the local delegation by by state lawmakers who have represent Fulton County. Uh, th- those lawmakers are pretty much unanim- unanimously against this. But lately, in in the last few years, the Georgia General Assembly has allowed local legislation to be pitched by other 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 lawmakers who don't reside, and. How and 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 a decision to allow this to go forward would become uh, uh, the 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 duty of of uh, of David. It would become in, fall into the purview of David Ralston, the House Speaker, or uh, or the leadership of the Senate Republicans. Yeah, Heath, I, I think Jim's making a, a point that we ought to pursue for a second here. In the upcoming yeah. session of the legislature, which will be an election year session, is is do Republicans really? want to risk embracing the, is is this a smart issue for republicans to embrace we haven't heard from the governor on this we haven't heard from speaker ralston as uh, jim just mentioned as as a political consultant what do you think we uh, your your uh, folks ought to be doing about this well i mean i always i'm because i'm a unique political consultant i always advise that good policy makes good politics longer term but uh, number one, this is a tragedy that we're even having to have this conversation. The great city of Atlanta has been the economic engine for the state and for the South, um, and it shouldn't have gotten to this point where the. I mean, but this is a there's a real groundswell of support. It's a very diverse coalition of residents of Buckhead who, uh, up until two years ago, felt safe and felt like they should make the investments they've made there and were safe to live there, and now. You've got a real movement happening on the ground. It's a grassroots-led movement, whether Bill White's the leader 
of it. He didn't create the issues, and he didn't create the movement. He's just uh, gone to the head of it. Um, I, look, Tucker Carlson's a provocateur. That's what he's doing. He's provoked this conversation, of course. I don't think this would be a great national trend. Uh, I do think that if the mayoral race could settle out, what because public safety is the number one issue for Democrats, for Republicans, and for independents. It's what's driving the Buckhead movement. If the city leadership that's in place today before the election happened were to address that in a way that the citizens of Buckhead felt comfortable with, this movement would die in a heartbeat. Uh, but unfortunately, Republican leaders are going to have to deal with it. I do think it'll come up in the session. I think uh, all the leadership is hoping that cooler heads will prevail, and there's some solution that the city leaders could come forward with that would end the movement. But it's really now incumbent upon them to address it, and so far that hasn't happened. If so, I do think it has the momentum, and I think while in the short term it would pass uh, and we would have that happen, I think that's not necessarily great policy and I'm not speaking for any of my clients when I say this. This is me as an independent consultant. Um, you know, as a policy, it's going to it's going to be detrimental in the, at least the medium term to the to the state and to the region. Amy, um, I totally actually concur with uh, his assessment of the sort of situation, sort of politically, but also uh, what might happen. And I think part of what is difficult about this is sort of the long term implications of are we going to start to have this type of fracturing within communities, um, and it then gets into how does it in fact work out? So there are sort of simple things that it is not very easy to all of a sudden create new administrative structures, right? Especially supplying the types of things that cities are normally charged with. And so you also end up with kind of the flip side where uh, the city might say, oh, so you need us to supply X, Y, and Z to you, great. Here's the cost you get. Yes, it's wildly different than the cost that like our residents get because you're not our residents and we're sort of doing this as a special thing. Um, there's a real issue that you can't create new school districts. And so what would happen there, right? Would they, how would they handle that and where would the schools come in and where would that administration be in? And so it's actually not sort of all that simple and it has a lot of big issues. And I think it also sort of sets up a stage for uh, really uncomfortable conversations in other places across the state as well. Well, th thank you. Um, we are out of time. I wish we could keep talking about this. It's a fascinating subject. And I think, Amy and Heath, you both kind of alluded to something that I thought when I heard these Tucker Har Carlson comments, which is just he is a provocateur. Anything, anything to continue trying to drive us apart is on his agenda. And I find it incredibly troubling that he would turn this over to it in his national audience, find another way to uh, turn us against uh, one another. So... Uh, I, I just wanted to say that before we end the show today. Thank you, Emmy Steigerwalt. Heath Garrett, come back more often. It was fun to have you back again. Uh, Mayor Hardy Davis, thank you for giving us your time today. Good luck continuing to vaccinate the people of your city and county. And Jim Galloway, another good Monday uh, with you on the show. Uh, we're back, of course, for another political rewind tomorrow. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I have this kind of... Uh, 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 thing that I say at the end of each show, you know, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask when you're indoors. If you're not for some reason vaccinated against COVID, get the vaccine. But here's the last one. I got my flu shot yesterday. I hadn't thought about flu shots at all in the middle of COVID, but that's another thing to do. Don't neglect your flu shot in the middle of a pandemic. So 
We'll just add that to the list of things that I would like to encourage everybody to do. Take care. See you all tomorrow. Again, my thanks to the great panel we had on today's show. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.